I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod and part three of the epic odyssey that has become Napoleon's Waterloo men. Graham Callister is back in the house, suitably rested, hopefully, from our two and a bit hour long recording session in which we did parts one and part two. If you're not familiar with what the heck we've been talking about, then people scroll back. Your thumbs are your friends. Um, You will find parts one and parts two of a fascinating discussion on the men that made up Napoleon's Waterloo army. We are talking very specifically for much of it about Dernon's corps, but we have ranged much wider, talking particularly about the Imperial Guard and much more besides. If you've forgotten since the last instalment, Graham is Senior Lecturer in History and War Studies at York St. John University. He's the author of War, Public Opinion and Policy in Britain, France and the Netherlands, 1785 to 1815. That's published with Palgrave Macmillan. And I double checked after we came off air uh, the other night. And yes, there is a 40% discount at Palgrave Macmillan at the time of recording. So be quick, because I'm sure it'll expire at some point. But... It's active people. Avail yourselves. Why not? He's also co-author of Battle, Understanding Conflict from Hastings to Hellmand, the best-selling title from Pen and Sword. Graham, great to see you. Are you feeling suitably kind of... Was the first episode cathartic for you, or did it just kind of build up a frustration that you need to rant more about the men in Napoleon's army during this period? Is, Is it a cathartic experience, or is it just... Just frustrating that you can't say everything that you want to say. Yeah, oh well, don't worry. Three three episodes is more than enough for me to say everything I want. And this this three or four hour session that we've got planned now uh, will certainly allow me to say more. Absolutely, as long as my voice holds up. Only three to four. I, I penciled in twelve hours. You know, we're we're going to record through the night. That was my plan. I think that that sounds fair to me. Okay. Um, some of, see, the thing is my listeners won't actually know whether or not I'm being serious about that because 
it's the Napoleonic Wars pod and we don't do cutting the conversation short just for the sake of a uh, an arbitrary time limit. So last time we were talking about, I think we p- finished um, with the, the discussion of the location of the divisions within this echelon attack that Durlon carries out on the 18th of June. Um, the for, for folks who have forgotten for some reason quite what we're on about, Durlon's attack is the one that goes in first. It goes up the, the French right flank. So in that gap effectively between La Haysant and Papalot um, ends up striking the Dutch-Belgian troops. So Prince of Orange's first corps is, uh, or is it first corps or is it second corps? The Orange, no, it's Hill who has yeah, he's, second he's corps. First corps. Okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah, Prince yes. of Orange is, is first corps. It, it's uh, it's Perponche's division, second Netherlands division, uh, and Violence Brigade is is in the line, and the Nassau's of Saxe-Flanders are holding Papalot, Lahey, Smoen. Um, the the buildings around the the far eastern part of the battlefield. Perfect. It's almost like you know what you're talking about. It's marvellous. Um, so that's where we are. And then behind them, they're sort of propped up by what I call the Peninsular Division. We'll get there in, in just a moment. Um, and we were saying that actually we don't really know whether next to 1st Division, which is the first one that goes in nearest um, La Haison, if you're looking at a map of the battlefield, um, we don't know whether third or second division is actually alongside it, but we do know that fourth division is out on the right. Um, so what we didn't get around to talking about uh, is how first division fares in terms of that attack. And, and the, the number of it for me is, and I've always been a little bit confused by this. It feels as though part of it, some accounts suggest that part of it kind of gets sucked into a fight for La Haison, And yet it also manages to go all the way up um, to the ridge itself, because from what I understand, it's the guys in first, somebody within first division is responsible for Picton's death. It's mm-hmm. uh, enlighten us, enlighten the the stupidity of, of what I've just sort of waffled into the microphone. What, what happens? So, so when we're talking about an echelon attack for, for anyone that doesn't know that uh, it basically means the divisions are attacking one after the other. Uh, so they're lined up from from left to right with first division on the left, fourth division on the right. Uh, first division marches off first, and then about five minutes later, the next one attacks. Five minutes after that, the next one. So basically, there's this ripple effect of divisions hitting the Allied lines. That's the the idea. And first division is advancing basically down the main uh, Brussels Charlois Highway uh, that that goes through the middle of the battlefield. Um, and they, they they've got the highway to their left. Uh, and when they arrive at La Haye-Sainte, which is about 300 meters from the, the Allied crossroads, at the center of the Allied position, um, the first brigade of that division attacks the farmhouse and, and outbuildings and the orchard around it. So that's the 54th and the 55th regiments uh, under the Charlet. Um, Charlet had taken over the, the brigade after Kio became the, the divisional commander. So Charlet is just one of the colonels. Um, and those two regiments attack the farmhouse, the orchard, uh, which is held by the, the second King's German Legion Light Battalion under Major Baring. The the 28th and the 105th, which is Bourgeois Brigade, they continue on trying to hit the the slope. So it's, it's one of the brigades that continues. But for those who know the Waterloo battlefield, you've got British riflemen positioned in a sandpit uh, and on a knoll just uh, opposite, basically, La Haye-Sainte. Um, and that, that's a problem for this advancing brigade because they, 
they can't get round this knoll. They can't go over the tops. So they have to go round. So they veer slightly to their right uh, and then kind of hook round this knoll. So that delays them slightly in their advance. Uh, but they hit the um, the Allied Ridge not far from the the crossroads. To their right, there is well, there's two other divisions who kind of are coming through the valley. And Durrett's division, the fourth way off to the right uh, is kind of 15 minutes behind so so that's doesn't really get anywhere near um and the other two divisions uh, about 200 yards between them um they catch up slightly with first division because it's been delayed slightly um as you alluded to uh there is some kind of debate as to whether second division really even gets there uh, Schmitz, who's a, a brigade commander who writes the report for the division, claims they they kind of stayed further back. Um, but you know the the British accounts are that they uh, all uh, regiments in in Kemp's brigade uh, came up against French troops, so we can assume that the second division hit as well. Um, and second and third division also pretty much reached the ridge line. Now the first troops they come up against, uh, aside from the riflemen. And aside from the, the troops in La Haysant, the first troops they come up against are Byland's Brigade, um, a Netherlands Brigade that's made up of three militia battalions, uh, the 27th uh, line and the, uh, I think it's the 7th line. Um, so a couple of regular regiments and then militia. And they've been pretty badly hit at, at Catrebra, um a couple of days earlier. Uh, about a quarter of their troops had become casualties or, or gone missing. Um, they'd fought well. They'd fought hard. Um They'd been overrun, some of them, by by cavalry. The 8th Militia uh, and the 5th Militia are especially are badly hit. Uh, so th these guys have fought quite hard. They've also, that's something that's often not mentioned, um, they had a midnight alarm. Uh, between midnight and 2 in the morning, the sentries thought there was a, an attack coming. So the, the brigade was called out, stood to arms in the pouring rain uh, overnight on the 17th. So they haven't slept much. They're tired. Uh, they're, they're not as hungry as the French, because the Prince of Orange did ensure that his men were fed. Um, but, you know, these troops are not in much of a state. Um, they're fairly raw. They haven't been in action with their officers before. And when they see these columns coming, they, they open fire. They fight a delaying action, um, but they begin to give way. Um, as we mentioned in the last episode, these columns have a huge weight behind them. Um, they just keep coming. You know, you take out one rank, there's 24 of them behind. Um, and so the, the weight of those columns begins to push back the, the Netherlands brigade. Uh, British accounts are that they all fled. Um, some of them probably ran away, but most, I think, did a kind of fighting withdrawal that became a bit more ragged as it went further back. So the, the Allied ridgeline becomes somewhat denuded. Um, on the right, by the crossroads, are three companies of riflemen in line at the 95th. Uh, another three companies have been stationed further forward. They'd also run away. So, you know, while we criticize the um, the, the Netherlands troops, British riflemen also make a run for it because you don't stand up to several thousand angry Frenchmen coming towards you who aren't stopping. Uh, you you make a run for it. Um, so this is how the, the French arrive at the ridgeline. Um, first division, the, their second brigade under Bourgeois comes first. Second division is slightly further behind them about 200 yards to their right uh, or, or their left, as, as the British would look at it, or as the Allies would look down the slope uh, and slightly further back. And third division, slightly further back again, another 200 yards off to the east. Um, 
and suddenly there's, there's nothing in the way of these three divisions coming up. Should we leave it there for for dramatic effect, or, or do you want me to carry on? We could do. Should we should we end the podcast there and do a part twenty seven? Uh, in due fair. course, um, I will just say you're a brave guy to go after the ninety fifth rifles because I still don't think that members of the ninety fifth fan club have forgiven me for saying that the ninety fifth aren't quite everything that they're cracked up to be in sharp. But, but what I meant was that the ninety fifth um, did a, a rapid realignment to the rear, um, advancing northwards. Um, to face the enemy better from a different position. Indeed, indeed. Um, you might have managed to, you know, fend off the hate mail. We shall see. Um, but elegantly done. Okay, so it's nearly worked. That's the the bottom line of this. Um, and it's it's not as though they've been heavily engaged. And, and I'm I'm not saying that to disparage against the the, the Dutch Belgian troops or indeed the 95th Rifles, for that matter. Um, but, and I, I appreciate what you say, and I think it's important to emphasise, they go through a hell of a lot at Cachabra, and I think the scale of what they experience at Cachabra is quite often missed. And again, we just kind of focus on this idea that, oh, some Dutch-Belgians just kind of hold the ground and then the British turn up and everything's sort of sorted, and, and that's not the case. It's not a rosy battle by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but effectively, Napoleon's on the cusp of breaking the Allied line. He's he's almost there. Um, and what's left is what I call the failsafe. It's his Peninsula War division for me. You know, a lot of the I think all of the troops, uh, all of the battalions are Peninsula War veteran units. Uh, sure, there'll have been you know a watering down of that because of the end of the war that doesn't end up being the end of the war and recruitment of new troops and all the rest of that of course folks but nonetheless it's always struck me that he sticks them there as the plug to to prop up that part of the battlefield and then everything else goes into the other flank because that's where he's predominantly preoccupied um and so it's all on on the british but that's not a uh, an unmitigated success story for the Brit for the British troops either is it because for all that first division ends up being pushed back in doing so as you say this is a national attack and like waves on a shore by pushing first division back they just end up exposing themselves yeah so the the division we're talking about Picton's fifth division has eight battalions, there's Kemp's 8th Brigade, Pack's 9th Brigade. Uh, all of them are Peninsula veterans. The 2nd of the 44th is probably the least veteran battalion. Um, it, it had most recently seen action in the Low Countries in 1814 at bergen op Zoom, and had been one of the battalions pretty much wiped out there. But it's hardcore of a, a couple of hundred veterans had fought through the Peninsula as well. The other battalions we're talking about, uh, the 3rd of the 1st, the 42nd and the 92nd in Pack's Brigade, uh, the 1st of the 95th, in Kemp's, the 79th, uh, the 28th, and the 32nd, all Peninsula veterans, uh, very experienced officers, very experienced men. They too had been through the Ringer at Catrebra two days earlier. Um, 30% casualties in most of PAC's division. Um, almost all the field officers wiped out. Um, the 42nd, I think, go into the battle with only two officers of a rank of captain or higher. Um, the, the 92nd, very similarly, they, they, they've been horrendously uh, beaten up 
um, a couple of days before. They were probably hoping, being in the second line, that they wouldn't have to do much. Um, but they're suddenly called upon to face this attack. Uh, so Picton, seeing the, the Netherlands brigade moving backwards, Picton orders Kempt forward to meet this first attack. Kempt's on the, the right of the two, um, nearest the crossroads. So he advances his three remaining battalions, the first of the 95th, like I said, already deployed further forward. Um, so he advances the 28th, uh, 32nd, and the, the 79th. Um, the 32nd nearest the crossroads, the 28th on the, the left. Um, and he advances them in line. They're drawn up behind in, in four ranks. They change into a two-rank line. They advance, and they get to... the. There's a sunken lane at the top of the ridge line with a hedge on either side of it. Uh, and they march up to that across the, the, the rear slope and reach that at about the same time as... Uh, the French First Division. Um, some French troops said they passed it, but most British accounts say they didn't. Uh, and, and quite a few French accounts as well don't indicate they went through the hedge. So it seems that they met them right at the ridgeline. A major advantage for the British troops at this point is that the French artillery has stopped firing. So no one's shooting at them as they advance. There's quite thick smoke on that ridgeline. Um, there's a, a British artillery battery under Rogers who's been firing at the, the French. They remain there. There was a, a Dutch-Belgian one as well, under Bielefeld, but that's that's withdrawn just as the French arrive. Um, but there's thick smoke there. The French can't see them. The French can't fire at them. And Kemp's brigade suddenly appears as if out of nowhere. Uh, and the, the French troops who thought they were just about to win this naturally pause and think, what well, what is going on? What happens next is disputed. Um, some people say there's a firefight. Uh, quite a lengthy one. Other people indicate that this is a volley from the British troops under charge. What certainly happens is the British troops fire once, more than once, isn't quite clear, and then they charge. Uh, they charge with bayonets, takes them about probably you know, 20, 30 seconds to get through those two hedges, and then they reform on the far side and continue their charge. Um, and the, the French troops don't really stick around to meet it. Um, and this isn't anything against the, the French troops uh, to say that they're, they're any lesser in any way. This is a natural reaction to people charging at you with bayonets. You will stand against a bayonet charge if you believe that you are going to defeat that charge. If the men around you are going to stand, if you're ordered and organized, there's a good chance you'll stand. If you're already disordered, if your officers have been killed, and we know from the accounts of the 28th, especially from Candler's account, a lot of the officers are already dead. Um, the only men who are mounted as officers are the colonels, the adjutants, and the chef de battalion. Both of the, the battalion commanders in the 28th are, are down already. Uh, at least one of the adjutants has gone. There's, there's no officers on horseback. Remember these troops, we talked about heights last time. The vast majority of troops can't see anything ahead of them. They can't see their own officers, who in any case will be off to the side of the companies. There's no leadership. They're disordered, and they're facing a charge by men who are in line, uh, who are are coming downhill and who also, uh, let's remember, are bigger than them on average. The British troops on average are about five centimeters taller than the average French soldier, um, which doesn't make a huge difference, but it's more intimidating. Um, and, and the French troops break. Um, uh, they, they withdraw, some say very quickly, others say actually they, they withdraw relatively slowly and the British just kind of keep prodding them down the hill. Uh, but first division goes backwards. Second division, has probably hit uh, around where the 28th and the 79th are. As memoirs from British officers 
uh, say that there are two columns that they face. So it's probably second division that they also push back and they, they withdraw in, in better order. Um, one of the accounts from second, uh, second division in the, the French army does say that they were already further back and, and didn't actually meet the British infantry. Um, but that is the account of the brigade commander of the rearmost brigade. So maybe he just didn't notice that the in the, the smoke, the confusion, the chaos, uh, that those foremost units did engage. Um, but these two French divisions are basically pushed back slightly down the slope. The problem is then for, for Kempt that he's got three battalions in line who've charged, possibly with the three companies of the rifles. That's not entirely clear. Um, but they've, they've charged down the hill. They don't have loaded muskets. They're slightly out of order now. They, they're in better order than the charge would indicate. Um, most officers seem to uh, kind of indicate that their men are still in hand. Um, so they haven't kind of broken into a mass of angry soldiers, uh, you know, rampaging across the battlefield. Um, but nonetheless, they're slightly out of alignment. They're not particularly well loaded. They're in two ranks. Now, the, the troops ahead of them are going backwards. That's, that's all grand. But off to their right, so across the road, is a cuirassier brigade who has just overrun a German battalion, the Lüneburg Field Battalion, who had been sent to try to relieve La Haye-Saint. They've been overrun by cuirassiers, who had then charged Alton's division, uh, which was in square and repulsed them. The cuirassiers have reformed and are now on the flank of this, this disordered British brigade. On the other flank, 3rd Division suddenly appear, still going for the ridgeline. So Kemp is outflanked on both sides. He's got three very shrunken battalions who are not in any particular order. Picton may or may not be dead at this point. Um, again, this is one of these things, um, very, very different accounts. The, there is one account which, which very positively says he was killed by Kemp's brigade because the, the officer in question remembers the body being plundered by soldiers of the 28th. So fine, that's by Kemp's brigade. Officers of the 92nd in, in Pack's brigade positively remember Picton giving them the order to charge later. So this is... Okay, that's odd. Uh, of course, the, the memorial is almost at the crossroads. You know, it's yeah. it's 100 metres or so from the, probably even less than that even, from the crossroads itself. Um, and I believe it, I should know this because I was there just the other week, but I believe it states quite positively, here is the spot. Mm. Um, yeah, this, it, as with everything, as with Ponsonby's death, uh, you know, the, the death of the big men on the battlefield, a lot of it is is uncertain. Um, exact positions, even the position of the Grand Battery on the French side is totally uncertain. Uh, some people say it was on the intermediate ridge. Yeah. Um, the, the battery commander actually says it's on the rear ridge, as do all the French accounts. So I'm, I'm sticking with that. I had um, a full-blown, not argument, but debate with uh, a guy that I was guiding out there. Uh, yes, I am referring to you, Todd, um, about the what the sources say in terms of where the Grand Battery is versus what when you look at the yeah. um the battlefield what you might think um you would do in terms of deployment so, yeah i mean this this starts with seaborne who who argues that they're on the forward ridge because british cavalry do charge them on that forward ridge at some point in the battle um and there were some guns there at some point um and since seaborne others uh, mark adkin john hussey they they've suggested that this intermediate ridge is where the ground battery set up but um it's not long enough uh, the, the French accounts don't say they did it at all. It would be nuts to advance your artillery without any covering troops to within 600 yards of the Allied positions over uncertain ground. 
thank before you. you're doing anything. Um, thank you. There you it, go, Todd. That is exactly what I told you. And and, and the, the Sal, who who is the he's the artillery commander of First Corps. Uh, his memoirs, while badly written and, and a bit confused, they explicitly state that it's on the the rear ridge. First Corps diary says it's on the rear ridge, but as the attack goes in, several batteries follow the the infantry divisions, and so by the time we're talking about where Kemp has charged first and second division, pushed them back, there are guns setting up on that intermediate ridge now, but the Grand Battery was further back. But Picton's death is is another of these things. Um, accounts differ. Um, but possibly he's been killed. Um, the troops wouldn't have noticed. None of them really pay any attention. None of them mention it in their memoirs as a big moment of uh, of peril. Um, but Kempt is probably trying to take over the, the division if Picton's dead. Um, if not, he's trying to rally his, his troops. The British are not in a good position here, the, the British division. Um, no, their, their Dutch and Belgian allies are still trying to rally to the rear. They can't help. Their artillery battery has just been withdrawn. Rogers has been told to pull back from the ridgeline. Winyates has yet to be brought forward. They're outflanked on both sides. Third Division is still going strong. The French Third Division coming up with Fourth Division in echelon 200 yards further out towards Papalot. And ahead of them is just two um, Hanoverian Landwehr brigades who are in a giant eight battalion strong square. Um, for, for reasons unknown, I suspect, because they'd been attacked by cavalry at Catrebra and the troops were maybe nervous, uh, but they form a, a horrifically large target that the French artillery fortunately ignores almost entirely. Um, but they're in no position to meet an infantry attack. Um, this is not looking good, even though this first counterattack has been successful. Um, if the French hold their nerve here, if they rally first and second divisions, now they can push back and uh, and Kemp can be overrun. So of course, what what the British do have in reserve is another brigade of infantry, Pax Brigade. Um, again, accounts of this differ. Some people say that only the 92nd engaged. Others say that um, the third of the first and the second of the 44th are ordered to to plug the gap and they fall back ahead of third division. Um, I'm inclined to believe that one. Because uh, third division accounts mention two lines of British troops that they they engage. The first one that they push back, the second one that they kind of cross swords with uh, at the um, or just past the hedge. Um, so two British battalions at least to push back. The forty second is pretty much stuck behind the retreating Dutch Belgians uh, and can't get forward in time. So the ninety second is ordered in no uncertain terms by Pack. Uh, to, to move forward. There's the famous line that almost everyone says, now everyone is broken in front of you, uh, you must charge the enemy. Uh, and the 92nd, and what we're talking here is about 200, 250 men. That's all that's left of the 92nd after Catrebra. Um, a shrunken battalion, about three or four companies worth of a full strength battalion, really. Um, they move forward in four ranks to face 3rd Division. 3rd Division Eight battalions strong, okay, only one battalion frontage, but uh, mostly intact despite the artillery attention as it went across the, the valley. Um, it hits hard. The 92nd probably start to go backwards. They deny it. Everyone else says they did. Um, human nature would indicate that you would 300 men at most against 3,000, 4,000. Um, they probably begin to go backwards as well. Four ranks is no kind of formation for meeting the enemy either. They just don't have time to deploy into two. And so the French 3rd Division breaches the ridgeline. They get through the two hedges. 
uh, that line the road. It takes them a, a minute or two because those hedges are prickly things. Uh, we know from the 42nd who complained that they uh, they got under their kilts and scratched their legs. Ooh. These are quite unpleasant. Yeah, it's... um. Oh, Sergeant Anton with the 42nd. Um, his main description of, of the fighting around the hedges, complaining about the prickles. Um, I mean, but, wood for the trees and all that. But, yeah. you know, clearly, clearly, the, clearly there was an injury there that left a lasting impression. Yeah, I mean, if you're not being hit by a bullet or a bayonet, a scratch on the leg is going to be annoying. So um, this is true. fair play to the man. But um, the, the 92nd, going backwards, the French get through the hedge line they're very disrupted by this and it takes a while to try to get the men back into ranks once they're through the hedge officers are, are grabbing men shoving them trying to scream over the noise uh shout at men wave at them through the smoke um you know this is deeply disorienting uh as a a battle for the soldiers in those front ranks um and their officers are desperately trying to get them in order because if they can there is nothing ahead of them the allied infantry is gone if they can get them in order, they will outflank Kemp's brigade. Um, they could overthrow this entire part of Wellington's line. If they break Wellington's left, they cut him off from the Prussians, they force him to retreat, the battle can be won. So um, people might think I'm exaggerating, but really this is a moment of enormous peril for the the Allied army. Um, if they don't respond to this move, the battle's lost. There's only one other moment of equivalent danger, and I spend a lot of time trying to sort of work out in my own mind which is the bigger, this or the Imperial Guard assault. Um, and I think yeah. the, the 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 Imperial Guard for me is is a crisis of a different nature because it's partly about the fact that the coalition is almost fracturing when you've got British light cavalry kind of almost threatening, well, no, physically threatening um, the um oh which troops is it that start to pull back i'm gonna say it's the hanoverians is it the, the brunswickers who begin to move back slightly you're, you're um, probably better but, placed to know than me but anyway you know you, you have that problem where you've almost got kind of allied on allied um <laughs> action going on there but in terms from a i guess a tactical perspective this is, this is far worse yeah, and I'd, I'd say both are, are really dangerous moments. The Imperial Guard attack can't be followed up. If Napoleon breaks the Allied lines there, there's nothing else he can do. He hasn't got any more troops. He can't follow it up, whereas he could follow this up. He's got plenty of reserves that he could throw into this. Um, there's another division, no, Duritz division, ready to, to exploit this. So I'd say this is a moment of greater peril, but, you know, the... The Allies are probably less shaken at this point. Their army isn't fracturing quite as much as, as the later moment. Um, in neither case, you know, is is Wellington a you know a second or two from complete annihilation? This would take some exploitation by the French to, in either case, to to really fracture his army. But they are moments of of genuine danger, and probably the two moments where uh, Wellington's army at least could have been beaten at Waterloo. Um, if the Imperial Guard attack had worked, it wouldn't have made a difference. The Prussians would have come and steamrolled the French anyway. Um, the French army was not going to win that battle as a whole, but had it broken Wellington's army, you know, Luke Reynolds wouldn't have a book about how the British won Waterloo. It would be this a disaster. Um, Luke. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the history would be different. Um, but th this this moment where First Corps has almost broken through is a, a genuine moment of, of peril for the Allies. And then, of course, a trumpet. 
rings out. Um, one of the <laughs> so it's it's often described as one of the more glorious moments glorious heavily inverted commas because i don't buy into battles being glorious places in the slightest i think they're horrendous places but it is regarded partly because of the lady butler painting right as one of the glorious um moments of the battle for the british in charge the union and household heavy cavalry brigades um look you're you're the expert it's better for you to talk us through this and then we'll start to dig into what this means and what we can read into these attacks from the sources. Yeah, so the only troops behind this breaking infantry uh, are two brigades of cavalry. Um, behind Picton is the, the Union Brigade, uh, so three regiments of dragoons under Sir William Ponsonby. Um, you got the, the first dragoons, the second Inniskillens, uh, sorry, the second uh, North of Britain dragoons, the Scots Greys, and the sixth Inniskillens. Uh, behind Anton, um, Alton's division, the other side of the crossroads, opposite the Cressiers who are threatening uh, Kemp's flank, you've got the household brigade, the guards, cavalry, basically, so the King's Dragoon guards, the first and second lifeguards, and um, the the Royal Horse Guards. Um, and these two brigades have been readied for action. Um, now they were dismounted; they were waiting behind the uh, the rear slopes during the French bombardment. Uxbridge has seen this infantry attack coming in; he's seen the danger. And he's ordered them to mount. He also uh, gives orders for um, a Dutch uh, heavy cavalry brigade, um, Tripp's brigade, and Guinea's uh, light cavalry as well to, to mount. So these are ready to go into action. And as the French hit the, the ridge line with their third division, he orders the cavalrymen forward. Now, Uxbridge is, is not that well known as a cavalry commander at that point. He's, he's done quite well in the peninsula, but only for a, a few months before being sent home and not coming back out. Um, for some reason, uh, you know, he, he wasn't given command. I think his seniority put people off because he would have been senior to Wellington at the time. Um, the fact that he had then run off with Wellington's younger brother's wife uh, maybe uh, made people think they might not get on too well, but I think actually they, they personally rubbed along quite nicely. Um, but he's he's not that well known as a, a great cavalry commander. He's anxious to make a name for himself. The day before at Genap, he'd messed up uh, a cavalry counterattack by throwing in the 7th Hussars, his former regiment. Um, and a few of the, the cavalry officers thought he was too anxious to make a name for himself. But here he orders the attack. Whether luck or judgment is on his side, we don't know, but it is perfectly timed. The 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 trumpeter, I think it's John Edwards, uh, who's the duty trumpeter, who who gives that trumpet call to launch the attack, um, you know, blows the trumpet, which can be heard up and down the line because the artillery has just paused. Uh, you know, the British troops have moved in front of their own artillery. The French troops are blocking their own. So there's a, this kind of slight pause in the noise of battle. The trumpet's heard down the line. The two brigades can advance almost simultaneously. Uh, on the right of the, the Allies, the Household brigade, the guards smash into the caresses. They they take some time to pick their way through Alton's division. They reform the other side of the the sunken lane and the uh, the hedge. So it takes them a few minutes to do that. But once they've formed line, they they charge straight away. Um, they're probably actually helped by these impediments because the British cavalry regulations were to charge for about a distance of 250 meters or 250 yards, which is far too far. Um, your horse gets tired, you get tired, you lose alignment, um, you hit home in a, a mob. It's a terrible idea. What they have to do here is charge from about 100 yards. So they, 
probably don't get up to more than a canter, but they hit the the French cuirassiers in line, um, and they hit them with bigger horses. Uh, the the British have a disadvantage of not being armoured, having worse swords. Um, they're they're heavier, they're unbalanced, they're shorter. They're not a great sword, but they have bigger horses. Uh, on average, the men are slightly larger as well, and they they literally physically hit the French and and ride them down. Um, on the other side, though, where there's the real threat of the the infantry attack, it's the Union Brigade that hits home. The first Royal Dragoons are on the right, and they hit home, probably against uh, First Division. The the remains of First Division, which is going backwards. In the centre, there's the Inniskillens, the the Sixth Dragoons, and they hit home probably against the front of Second Division, and the front on the flank of Second Division. And on the left, there are the Scots Greys, the Second Dragoons, and they hit home against Third Division. And this is Third Division that's just breached the Allied Ridge, that's just got through the hedge. Men are disordered and are being dragged back into line by their officers. This is the attack, though, that could, if they get back into line, overthrow the Allied lines. The, the second dragoons hit them. Famously, of course, the 92nd, who are probably going backwards already, see their countrymen, or the Scots Greys, coming through their ranks, start cheering them on, uh, cheering Scotland forever, grabbing onto the stirrups, uh, getting a, a lift forward to the cavalrymen, probably trying to not be trampled underfoot, if I'm honest. Uh, but these three cavalry regiments with, with three squadrons each smash home into the columns. Now, these columns have been criticized for not being very useful against cavalry, but actually, if that was in the middle of uh, a field, all they would do is turn outward slightly, start firing, the cavalry would be in trouble. But these are disordered. They can't really see what's going on. They've they've been hit by shot and shell. They're expecting to fight infantry. They don't expect the cavalry to appear to their front. Um, the cavalry was slightly disrupted by having to charge through their own infantry, um, half the infantry managed to dodge out the way. Uh, Kemp's brigade, because they're further forward, see the cavalry coming and actually wheel out the way in some cases. In other cases, they just run out the way or the cavalry goes round them. Um, it's only the Scots Greys who kind of have to plough through the middle of their own troops. Um, but they hit the, the French regiments hard. Um, and the, the French infantry disintegrate. They're in absolutely no state to fight back. Um, they're in no order. There's no officers giving them orders, uh, and it just becomes a slaughter. Um, the, the French accounts of this are brutal. Um, they just admit to basically being picked off by British horsemen, and there's nothing they can do. And from from this moment being no, the moment of peril in the battle, probably within two or three minutes, it has turned into an utter rout of at least two divisions, probably all three. Second division claims not to have been routed that much. Um, but at least two of them are completely thrown back. Uh, Fourth Division, seeing this, it's a couple of hundred yards further back across the valley. They just stop. They're not going to continue on. Uh, And the attack stalls entirely. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So there's, you, you pointed to it there, there's a lot of debate about who is and isn't affected and all the rest of it. Um, so I do want to move on to, to talk about wounds and what you found in, in that regard, because that has the potential to shed some light on that debate. I, I guess there's one small thing to dwell on here, and it is only a minor point. The accounts that sort of say, look, we got swamped and, and literally didn't know what hit us actually from what you're saying that's that's pretty much accurate it, it seems to to tally with with everything that you found in this regard you know the whether they're third division pushing through a hedge or whether it's um first division that's still kind of pulling itself back and it's it's trying to work out what the heck it's going to do next they do just get mobbed mm-hmm. yeah, and it, it's not necessarily a rhetorical device just saying we didn't see the horsemen coming um you know 1500 heavy large horsemen you should see coming towards you um but if you're in that situation where uh, there's a huge amount of smoke there's disorder and let's remember that height differential men in the rear ranks cannot see anything anyway um it is entirely plausible that these horsemen literally just appear to your front uh giving you seconds to react probably a few seconds of frozen fear and then they're in amongst you um and so the, the horsemen appearing from nowhere don't give the french any time to rally um, and and do just begin to to slash away. Um, the rear ranks begin to run. The the front ranks try to fight as best they can. Uh, they can't outrun the horses though. No, the the ground is heavy going. The horses do get a bit tired, but the the men also struggle across that ground. Um, and these these regiments are written de- uh, ridden down. So let's move on to talk about the wounds. Um, it is a, a inevitably a, a gruesome topic, but we're not going to be kind of gratuitous in in how we discuss this there are certain things that you would expect right so you'd expect third division to predominantly be looking at saber wounds um you'd expect first division to have a mixture of um bullet wounds and um and and saber wounds maybe some bayonet wounds thrown in there as well is that kind of what you found and then we'll sort of talk about differentials within that in a sec yeah, I mean, um, well, it, you know, it's a gruesome topic, so I, I hesitate to say it, it's frustrating not to find things in the records because um, someone being sabred is probably more frustrating. But um, you know, th- there isn't that much in the records. There's For, for each regiment, um, they record that all the men who were lost in Waterloo in some way, but not necessarily how. Um, some are more complete than others. The 19th line, for example, um, gives it a far larger number of killed and wounded. Uh, about 263 in total, uh, but other regiments record almost everyone as as lost, presumed prisoner of war, because they don't know if they're killed, wounded, missing. They they don't know what happened to them. Um, where we do have records of wounds, there's maybe only 40 or 50 per regiment. Um, most of them are shot, um, and I suspect that's because most wounded men who who have wounds recorded withdrew with the army. Or were, were taken back to the rear, um, and you know, their, their case was seen by a doctor. Um, 
but we do see maybe more men in regiments like the 105th, the 45th, the, the regiments you'd expect that we know were ridden down being hit by saber wounds. Um, quite interestingly, second division, there's very few, there are a few, but, but very few compared to gunshot wounds. Um, so that that's partly probably because the records don't really record things. So in the 19th of the 263 men recorded as killed or wounded, only one says how it happened. So we, we don't know how the other men were wounded. Um, and the 19th would have been at the front of that, that column, because um, it seems that all the second brigades went went uh, first. Um, so, you know, it, it may well be that a lot were sabred, but of those who are recorded, there's not many sabre wounds noted. First and third division a bit more, um, but most of the wounds are, are gunshot wounds. Um, so it, it, it's frustratingly difficult to tell exactly um, when in the battle they're wounded. Um, and it exactly kind of how heavily the, the battalions were engaged. Just playing devil's advocate for a second, is there something to read into that about survivability, i.e. if somebody's... I'm just thinking here about the, the British heavy cavalry sabre is a sort of yard-long meat cleaver. It's not a delicate weapon by any stretch of the imagination. It is designed to come smacking down on top of your head or if you're going to raise an arm, it's probably going to shatter your arm and and, and do much worse besides, um, which creates huge trauma wounds that become harder to survive. Is there perhaps something to read into that, or is this purely speculation? I think that that's fair. I mean, looking at previous wounds, which the, the records do give us a, a huge amount of information on things that people have survived, about two-thirds of them are gunshot wounds, only 10% are by saber um and so and and only about seven percent by cannon fire uh and that that's things that we know that people survived because they've been wounded previously and they're still in the registers in 1815 so we can expect that same kind of thing most saber wounds would have left bad injuries you know if you're hit in the head you may well survive it but you you'll probably be knocked unconscious um you may have your um your head laid open um you're probably not going to withdraw to your own lines. This is especially the case as accounts on both sides say that cavalrymen of both sides targeted the wounded. Um, so as much as men who were running off with, with their muskets still in hands, uh, the wounded were also stabbed on the floor, sabred, um, slashed at. And so if you've been hit, you're, you're probably if, you know, not going to get up and start to try to walk away, or if you do, you may well get sabred again. Um, so a lot of those men would have stayed lying on the the kind of slopes of the Allied Ridge, essentially, and their comrades would have had no idea what happened to them. Um, in terms of actual deaths, I, I couldn't say, but I, I do think the sabre wounds, cannon wounds, are probably more deadly than gunshot wounds uh, as a whole. And staying with gunshot wounds, you've got some interesting indicators, I think, in terms of proportions of where people get wounded. Is that right? Yeah, so um, again, this is, um, I mean, the, the best things are from before Waterloo. Uh, so at Waterloo itself, there's not enough data really to tell us a huge amount. Um, but generally, gunshot wounds that people were able to survive, so if they were recorded in the record, um, it normally means they survived. About 45% of those wounds come to the, the lower limbs, as you'd expect, the leg, uh, knee, feet, toes, etc. About 20% to the upper limbs. Um, so anything from the shoulder downwards, uh, only 14% on the torso. So these gunshots, 
if they're hitting you on the torso, I mean, these are, you know, lead balls the size of your thumb going at a, a fair rate of knots. Um, they are going to tear a nasty wound. Uh, exit wounds especially are going to be quite nasty. Um, so if you're hitting the torso, it seems to do a lot of damage. And a lot of those torso wounds as well are to the back or the side. Um, they're, they're explicitly noted. Only a few men are, are noted as being shot in the chest and surviving. And I suspect that these are, are spent rounds from a distance. Um, about 12.5% of wounds came to the head uh, and about 6.5% to the shoulders or the neck. Um, so, uh, again, these could be um, you know, spent rounds that are not doing as much damage, uh, glancing blows, things like that. Um, but normally, you know, two-thirds of these wounds are, are coming to the, the limbs. So if you hit on the extremities, relative chance of survival – um, hitting the vital areas, much less chance. About 3% as well came to the groin or the hip area. Um, again, um, I suspect if you hit at short range there, that's going to do a lot more damage um, and is less survivable. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the gunshot wounds, especially um, that, that kind of take people out but don't kill them, are hitting the legs. Um, and if you think of, of how people are aiming, you're, you're told in your training at 100 yards, aim for the legs. Uh, 200 yards, you know, aim for the torso. 300 yards, aim for the head. 400, aim a, a couple of feet above the head. Um, just because of the trajectory of the bullet. Um, and, and people did aim. Now, as much as we, we like to say these are inaccurate muskets and uh, people aren't uh, crack shots, etc., which, which is, is true. They are fairly inaccurate. Um, they will, were still taught to aim. Um, and if you're aiming low, if the bullet does happen to kick up, then yeah, it might hit them in the chest, um, but it may also just fire straight at their knee. Um, so it kind of makes sense. A lot of people are hitting the, the lower limbs. Okadoke, there's a lot for us to sort of digest there, I guess. I know that um, there are some curious little instances that you came across and sort of freak chances, but I'm going to deliberately save that for the book. Because people, when the book does land, and yes, there is a book incoming from Graham on this that you will need to buy, um, then you'll you'll need to read it to um, learn the, the secrets there. We can't give you everything, even if we are going to give you three hours of podcasting content for your enjoyment. There's one more aspect of the battle that I want to touch on, and it's quite simply to just say that for all that we um, regard, quite rightly, the, the charge of the um the union brigaders having shattered Durlon's core that's not quite the end of it that, because it gives the implication that now the entirety of Durlon's men either vaporize or run away which isn't fair and it's also not accurate and whilst some do end up deciding that's quite enough for me thank you you can see why um they end up being pushed back against the allied line writes well no i say right at the end of the battle that's an exaggeration in itself but in that final phase of the battle napoleon is exerting pressure on the entire allied line and so Durlon's corps uses the rest of the day to regroup and then they are sent in again aren't they yeah absolutely and, and there's an indication that second and fourth division are less hit by this cavalry charge because they're sent in sooner so fourth division is sent against the the far left of the allied army the far right of the, the uh, french um, against Saxe-Weimar's brigade to, to take Papalou-Lahaye, um, mostly, I think, to give it a, 
a kind of a, a bulwark against the Prussians arriving because it's actually useless for the battle. You're not going to get round there. You're certainly not if you don't have infantry reserves. Um, so I think the reason that they're sent in is to try to kind of take those buildings so they can use it against the Prussians uh, should they arrive uh, from that flank. Um, and second division, um, their first brigade, so this is uh, Schmidt's brigade, 17th line and the 13th Leger, they're sent against La Haysant, which of course they do take before the the attack of the Imperial Guard, kind of between the big cavalry charges and that attack. They take this 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 quite important position ahead of the Allied lines, um, and it costs them quite a lot to do it. This is, um, of course, the, uh, the the story of the heroic Lieutenant View of the engineers with his axe, um, which is sometimes conflated with Le Gros over at Hougoumont. Um, Vieux smashes the gate down. The the, the defenders, um, who are mostly still the Second King's German Legion, but they've been uh, reinforced by a few other companies, uh, they run out of ammunition. Um, there's no way of getting ammunition down to them because the building is basically surrounded by French skirmishers. Um, and having run out of ammunition, they try to defend it with the bayonet, um, but they're simply overwhelmed and they're pushed out. Uh, so two of Delon's divisions are involved in these kind of actions on the extremities. And then as the Imperial Guard goes in, everything that Delon has is then thrown against the other uh, side of the Allied lines. Um, they, I think they, they engage more in skirmish action than a, a full attack. Uh, their skirmishers come into action. The, the other regiments or the rest of the regiments don't really push home in any kind of... Um, you know, particular vigor. Uh, but also this this adds some peril to this Imperial Guard moment because um, it's not just one part of the Allied line that's threatened. Um, you know, the rest is being pinned in place. It's not like Wellington can just then call upon his left wing and concentrate them all on one part of the battlefield. Uh, they're being pinned in place. Uh, and of course, Lambert's division has by that stage moved in to where Picton's was. Um, and they were holding it, hence why the... Um, uh, I think it's the 88th, isn't it? It's uh, pretty much annihilated. Oh, sorry, the 27th. 27th, 27th is, is almost annihilated uh, near the crossroads um, no, from, from Lambert's division. Um, so more of Wellington's troops by this stage, actually on the, the left of, of the battlefield, they can't be withdrawn to, to support his right because Derlon is threatening. Um, so you know, Derlon's corps goes through the real ringer early in the day, um, and yet they do manage to rally and go back. They probably lost a quarter of their strength. Um, in fact, more than that, I'd probably say nearly a third of their infantry is lost in that first attack. Um, two to 3,000 killed the same prisoners uh, or killed and wounded the same prisoners. Uh, you know, they've been hit really hard and yet they still do come back for more, uh, which I think is testament to, to the men. I mean, as much as we said in the previous episode, there's a lack of organization. They've been thrown together in different units. There's a mix of veterans and new men. Uh, there's there's no want of courage at all from this this first call. That's very very well said. In fact, you've preempted exactly what I was about to say. You know, it is a testament to the grit of these guys. Just consider for a moment what they've been through a few hours earlier, and yet still, whatever the reason might be, sense of duty or whatever, they still rally and then obey the order to go again, albeit not in the same guise. It does also make you wonder. If the Prussians hadn't arrived when they did, and Lebeau's corps wasn't then used to sort of fend off the Prussians, and was instead used as originally planned to attack in a similar kind of way, or at least in the same place as Derlon had gone in, 
what the heck would have happened um, then. You know, another hour, two hours delay for the Prussians would have been absolutely catastrophic. But we're into what ifs. So one thing that I want to dwell on at this point is legacy information. Um, and I don't I'm not familiar with the sources. You are. I don't know what is available to us in order to track these men post Waterloo, but do we get any kind of flashes of what happens to some of these guys? Uh, so the the regimental records that I've used take them to about between August and September of 1815 when the regiments are disbanded, uh, and it just says whether the man is discharged uh, or sent to the departmental legions, which kind of replace these regiments uh, when they're disbanded. The there will be records for those regimental uh, those these departmental legions, so you will be able to trace men's inscription in those uh, and follow a career through. Um, you'd probably have to go to, to Vincennes to the the French Army archives for that. There will also be um, information in the the departmental archives, um, but there's there's very little that's available unless you go digging through the archives for them. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have a huge amount of information. Well, I don't have a huge inf amount of information about what happens to them, um, which in many cases is quite sad because there's there's some brilliant stories and brilliant careers that men have had um, that that these these records tell us. Uh, you know, men who uh, have been in the army since 1793 who were at Toulon with Napoleon. Um, you know, it is mentioned in their record that they began at Toulon. They were in the army of Italy. They were in Egypt. They were with the Grande Armée all the way through to Russia. They fought all the way through 1813 and 1814. Then they were at Waterloo. Um, men who were there every step of the way with Napoleon. And I would love to think that there was somewhere just a record that says, and then he went home, had a nice glass of wine, and regaled stories until dying of old age somewhere in his bed. Um, but alas, uh, I don't have the records to hand. Um, but they, they will be there if, if you're willing to go to archives and dig them out. Yeah, you're dead right. You do just wish that for... I mean, all of these guys deserve a quiet life post Waterloo. Of course they do. I mean, think about what they've been through. But yeah, for, for people like that, it it certainly puts Sergeant Lawrence's gravestone into comparison, doesn't it? And it pales in comparison. Um, because, of course, so some folks won't be familiar, but Sergeant Lawrence is the guy whose gravestone almost reads, in fact, Dan Snow likened it to reading like a sharp novel in terms of all of the actions that he's at, um, Relief of Amiro Talavera, uh, I want to say Basako, I, th I only saw it the other day. Um, he's also, a, he, the, I think the only one he misses is Salamanca, basically, out of all the big battles. Um, and then you, you know, you've got these guys who do Toulon, Egypt, uh, the, the Grand Armée for its entirety. You know, you just sort of think the things they saw, they deserved quiet lives afterwards um yeah sad um and of course it would actually be nice to know where these guys get buried but of course for the majority of them they'll have been buried in pauper's graves in a bare patch of earth in a cemetery in somewhere in france and we've long since lost it um the, the location of it um before we start to talk about what's next for you and what you're going to do with this data, I do just want to pick up on something that I scribbled down way back in episode one, if you can cast your minds back to that, folks. Um, for us, it was as long ago because it was like three days ago that we recorded that. Um, and it was to do with prisoners of war from the prison hulks. And that suggestion from Napoleon that, you know, all of these men have been prisoners from of the British and so they all hate them. 
Um, how much do we know about about that? Do we know how many are prisoners or were formerly prisoners, I guess? And is there are there any inklings of, of things almost sort of going full circle for these guys, i.e. they get made prisoners again, courtesy of what happens at Waterloo? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there are about 90,000 men who are repatriated to France at the end of the Napoleonic Wars from Britain alone. Uh, probably about the same amount from from other countries, especially after the big capitulations, um, yeah, the, the big garrisons in 1813-14, which, which uh, surrender. Um, but when they all come back to France, they're by no means kept in the army. A lot of them have been broken by the experience or were made prisoners so long ago. You know, some of these guys have been prisoners uh, since May of 1803, pretty much. Uh, since the war started, um, especially in the Caribbean, there's several men who are taken prisoner in 1803 and are prisoners all the way through. So a lot just get discharged in, in 1814. The, the regiments we're talking about, or that I've looked at in First Corps, uh, often received a few hundred prisoners, but the 85th, for example, gets 302, uh, the 17th, 299. Um, 262 in the 21st, 170 in the 54th. These are just the numbers I happen to have to, to hand. Um, so these are, are decent numbers of men, but you know, Napoleon's rhetoric of most of the army have been prisoners, well, it, it's nonsense. Um, there a quarter of a regiment at most at Waterloo had been previous prisoners. Most of them, or half of them, not of Brit uh, the British anyway. Um, so it's a big exaggeration of Napoleon to say, you know, they, they want revenge for the British prison hulks. Um, there's loads of men, though, that are found who were made prisoner by the British, especially uh, in the peninsula or in some cases at Trafalgar, uh, two cases um, in the Caribbean or, you know, elsewhere in the world uh, who then become prisoners at Waterloo again. Um, there's, there's not much of a correlation as to whether you're more likely to become a prisoner again, it seems. Um, so I don't think, you know, if you've surrendered once, you're likely to do it again. But for some men, uh, you know, they, they'd fought twice in their lives and they both times ended up a prisoner of uh, the British. There's one poor chap, and I forget which regiment he's in at Waterloo, but um, he'd been at Salamanca with the 22nd. Um, I think that was his first battle. Uh, he was overrun by British cavalry at Salamanca with the 22nd and taken prisoner. He then marches with Dillon's first corps at Waterloo, where he is overrun by cavalry and taken prisoner. Uh, and so that poor man's experience of, of military life cannot have been pleasant. Um, I have nothing but sympathy. Um, but we have a, a few of these, these nice anecdotes. Well, nice because I think they'll have survived. Um, but anecdotes of men who are taken prisoner a couple of times, uh, and Waterloo being the second time. Yeah. <laughs> you say that poor guy. Salamanca, cavalry charge. Waterloo, cavalry charge. He must have, frankly, he must have had nightmares. About yeah, there's that. one chap, and I, I can't remember his uh, his name, um, but he was made prisoner from 1796 to nine, I think, and then captured again in 1803 and held prisoner until 1814. Um, and uh, he must have the distinction of being the most imprisoned man in the Napoleonic Wars, um, having been spent most of the Revolutionary Wars as a prisoner. And then almost the entirety of the Napoleonic Wars. And I think he's captured again at Waterloo. Wow. Um, Maybe that guy was quite good at surrendering. 
Maybe, oh, maybe yeah. he's an exception to the rule. Um, I mean, he's be... more sensible than most, maybe. Um, so I'll just sit this one out. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah. Take me prisoner. Do they get paid for their time as POWs? I don't believe so. I think that the French government uh, or, or the, the government that they kind of belong to normally gives, sends supplies, money, kind of provides something for them, I think. Um, but I know the British government complained that it's costing too much to keep prisoners because um, they have to kind of pay for their upkeep. Um, but I don't think they're sent money or, or kind of given back pay either for being a prisoner of war. Uh, I mean, Napoleon also doesn't give back pay to his own soldiers for not being prisoners. So There is um, that. Yeah, otherwise it would be quite a good little scheme, wouldn't it? You know, tell you what, lads, if you've had enough of army life, just go surrender. And, um, you know, you, you'll just sit it out comfortably in a prison hulk that's rancid quite frankly so if you survive the disease then you come back home and you get a nice lump of back pay settle down buy yourself a freehold and uh, start a family sort of thing yeah probably not quite the the genius scheme that i thought it might have been Um, you can imagine the guys who'd fought all the way through the war though seeing these guys who'd surrendered after the first battle coming back and being given a huge lump sum and buying a pub somewhere I mean, you know, people were annoyed enough about the Waterloo medal. You can imagine how they'd have kicked off about this. Too right. Too right. Okay. Um, so I guess the, the big question is what happens next with all of this? And I mean that in a few kind of strands. What are you planning to do with it all? Obviously, you're writing a book. Um, so let us know the, the plans on that. But are you going to expand this outwards? Have you sort of reached saturation point with these guys and you know now you are done? Or are you planning to do the same thing for other units? I know we've talked about how you actually have some data for the Imperial Guard and, and for other units you've covered much more than just Dardon's core. Um, and I guess also, is there anything else that we can extract from from this data? Yeah, the, at the moment, uh, I've got my next project is about conscription. So I'll be using the records a bit uh, to look at conscription, uh, when men join, what they do, etc. cetera. Um, but I'd, I'd like to revisit these in a lot more depth, do some longitudinal studies of a regiment from 1803 to 1815, um, looking at, at changing patterns of recruitment, ages, professions, possibly uh, longevity, um, looking at changes maybe in, in the average height of soldiers. Does that change across the period? Um, now, using these big data sets, we can get tens of thousands of bits of data from this. Um, I'd also like to look at things like promotion. Were men from certain departments promoted more? We know that literacy was important. We know that some departments had better literacy. So were men from certain departments promoted more? Were they promoted faster? Uh, is there a, a link between health and height uh, and different departments there? So there's a huge amount of things to do with this data that has nothing to do with the actual fighting that I'd like to, to play with. Um, finding a bit of time to do it and maybe finding something um, more sophisticated than my brute force approach of, of just using Excel spreadsheets and then uh, using the calculate function. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of social history, basically, we can get out of this as well. Um, looking at professions, um, you know, comparing men's professions to army careers. Uh, you know, Is there any kind of pattern there, uh, not just in one or two examples, but across thousands of examples that we have? Um, all of this, I think, can, can give us some quite exciting uh, data. Um, so if anyone else fancies doing any of these projects, feel free, because uh, there's a huge amount of data out there, and it would be really interesting to get answers to some of these questions. Well, for a long time, we've been calling for a French equivalent of 
Ed Koss's book all for the King's Shilling. And it sounds like from what you've got there that actually we've got the bulk of the data to make that fly. So I don't know if you fancy going and doing that project, just kind of putting a book title in, in front of you and saying, there you go, go do that. <laughs> Not like you haven't got enough to be doing. Um, but equally, if there is an, an ambitious master's student out there who's listening to this thinking, yeah, I could potentially do that for a doctorate. Well, now you know who to talk to. Yeah, um, all, for, all for Napoleon's Frank. There you go. Got there you the you title. Go. Um, you but I mean, yeah, if someone does speak French, uh, if someone can pick up the the handwriting, which is, is not always easy, but you, you get there, you know, as with anything, a bit of practice. Uh, seriously, if you're thinking of a doctorate, these are brilliant resources uh, to use. And the, the real bonus is that French archives are exceptionally handy with putting stuff online and making it accessible and are really, really user-friendly. Um, I've heard some horror stories, of course, from from archives, uh, but I've always found French archives to be absolutely superb. Uh, and the staff, as long as you admit that you're a stupid Englishman and that they know more than you, um, they are enormously helpful. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's got an interest in this really to have a look at these registers because they are truly superb as a resource. And the book is in the pipeline, I gather. Are we able to hear any details about when we might expect it, add it to Christmas card, uh, Christmas card list, Christmas wish lists. Got there in the end. It's it's with the publisher and the the copy editor. So in a few months, possibly not for Christmas, but maybe for Valentine's Day. Uh, and uh, yeah, seriously, no, buy someone this as a Valentine's present. They will never ask you for another gift again. This... They might not speak to you again, but you know. And it depends uh, what you want your experience to be on Valentine's Day, doesn't it? Um... But uh, we do have a predominantly male audience on this show, I must say, um, to the tune of about 89%. Um, but just a sort of forewarning, folks, if you're planning to get this for a loved one, just make sure that they're not going to then smack you over the head with it and ask what the hell you were thinking, because that will rather ruin the mood of whatever you plan to do come Valentine's Day next year. One final one from me. Um it's a, an incredible, and I mean that very honestly and genuinely, an incredible resource that you've put together here. Obviously, like with me and my court martial stuff, you're going to want to hold on to it for a bit until you're done with it. But are there any plans to share this information online and how might that work? Um, I, I don't have any plans at the moment, but this is more due to time and funding rather than reluctance to share information. Um, if anyone wants any of the information i'm happy to uh to give them some um it's currently in, in my own note form um which also makes it inaccessible to a lot of people because you won't know what the hell i'm talking about with things um but uh you know if i could get funding for it or or the time to to put it in a an order i'd put it online but i'd also say that, that a lot of the stuff is online already in its rawest form you you do have the images um it's not in a, a spreadsheet or anything um, but people can still access it. But unfortunately, uh, at the moment, I don't have uh, plans to, to make it more widely accessible. Somebody needs to throw some money at you to make it happen. Yeah. And, and buy yeah. you some time off of work to actually find the time to, to do that. Um, yeah. But, you know, if anyone really does want this data and, and wants to use it, just drop me an email and, uh, you know, I'll be able to, well, I'll, I'll try to help in any case. Fantastic. Graham, it's been an odyssey of a recording. Uh, I don't think we've ever had a single interview go to three and however many 
bit of an hour. It's, uh, yeah, so about three and a quarter hours worth of recording. Um, it's It's been an absolute joy. There's been so much in terms of fascinating revelations. I know the listeners are going to have loved it. Thank you for taking the time to share it all with us. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show when the book is out to discuss other bits and pieces in due course. Oh, thanks very much. And thanks for listening to me. Much love to all of you, my loyal Patreon supporters. But folks, remember what I said at the start of this show. The exclusive content comes to an end this month, and I'll be suspending the Martial, Emperor and Legion to Scholar tiers. So please check the previous exclusive episode, which went into detail on what you need to do. If you are due to be charged between now and the 25th of September for the Martial, Emperor and Legion to Scholar tiers, you need to change your tiers so that you aren't charged for perks that simply won't exist come the 25th of September. If you only subscribe for the exclusive content, you need to suspend your subscription on Patreon and or Spotify. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Mars Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Timothy Day, Sam Moore, Stephen Flanagan, Wyatt Pollock, Ulrich Ducardo, David Graylick, Armin Darbin, Rob Coughlin, Noah Fink, Carol Dixon-Smith, and Paul Geschek. The Admirals, David Priest, Graham Callister, Mark Duckers, Michael Guest, John Haynes, Stephen Ashworth, Kate Wilcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Ger Brown, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, Keyes Bishop, and Charles McKay. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, JC Kaiser, and Bob Burnham, all of whom, of course, are about to be forced to abdicate. And last, but by no means least, the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. And I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.